0: If you would, please, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. These verses were our text for our meditation last week on religion. And I'd like to read them again. Verses 26 and 27, James chapter 1. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Last week I sought to expand on the concluding statement of Dave's sermon. This is what he said, There are times when it becomes very clear to me that it must be clear to others that there's something silly about trying to make a religion out of truth. Just a word before we get in about these meditations that we've been doing, actually since February. They are not intended to be exhaustive, and one might even say they're not necessarily intended to be instructive. They are rather to remind you of what you already know and to provide you fuel, material for you to think about, to meditate on. So you might think at certain points in the sermon why doesn't Damon mention this or afterwards there are so many things Damon could have said and and I realize that. Um, there is much I am not including in these meditations but giving what I think we should think about in the coming week. Two weeks ago the meditation was on freedom and last Sunday it was on religion. Today I would like to combine them and look at a meditation on the freedom of religion. To do so, I have to review the past two meditations. First of all, freedom. An entire series could be done on the issue of freedom. But the text that we used two weeks ago was from John chapter 8, in which we, we hear the now familiar words, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's in verse number 32 of John 8 and then four verses later. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we saw that these words were spoken not to unbelievers or to non-believers. These are spoken to those who had believed in Jesus. And we are told that there were many of the Jews who had put their faith in him. So when he tells them the truth will set you free and the Son will set you free, what is their reaction? They want nothing to do with that. They will have none of it because they believe that they are already free. And by the end of the chapter, they are picking up stones to kill him, to stone him. They didn't see themselves in need of freedom. They claimed that Abraham was their father and that God was their father. Therefore, they were free. And what Jesus was selling, they wanted no part of. They didn't need freedom from him. The good news that Jesus had brought to them is not something that they want or they believe that they need. I would argue that Americans are very much like the Jews of John chapter 8. Our country rests on the notion of freedom. The Declaration of Independence, we hear life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By the way, a phrase taken from John Locke. Um, These are three examples of unalienable rights. Life liberty or freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration says it's been given to all human beings and it is the government's job to protect these rights. And the last two lines of our national anthem. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free, the home of the brave. What is freedom and what does it mean? I think for many people, freedom is getting to do what you want. And law is that which restrains that freedom. You should have the freedom and then the law says, no, you can't do that. It's got to be more than 10 years ago. Anne and Elias are meant to visit us along with their firstborn, Hosea, who had just turned four. And that, I, I think I was preaching on this passage from James and Anne told me after the service that on the morning of his birthday... Hosea came and asked her, am I four now? And she said, yes, today you are four. And his response was, now I can do anything. Now that he was four, he was free to do anything. I think that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is a ruling, a recent ruling from the Supreme Court. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe and of the mystery of human life. This is from Justice Anthony Kennedy. I can do anything I want. I have the right to define everything. That is what we see as Americans. And so, when the gospel says you will be set free, I am free. But What what need do I have of the gospel? And then... um, I quoted from the sermon from Jason and Gwen's wedding. What is freedom? To be free is to realize your inmost nature, to give fullest expression to it by abiding in God's word, by obeying his commands, by doing and not just hearing. The simple act of choosing is not freedom. One may choose to play a violin with a hacksaw instead of a bow, but is that freedom? One may choose to pour sand into the gas tank of his or her car, but is that freedom? One may choose to eat something poisonous, but is that freedom? The simple act of choosing is not freedom. Choosing well is freedom. That is, choosing to obey. Why you choose, how you choose, what you choose are all decisive factors in the Bible's understanding of freedom. And we see from John chapter eight that, in fact, these people are not free because they choose not to follow Jesus after that they had believed in him, and then when he says, "Well, I will set you free," you're like we don 't need any of that," and they walk away we 'll come back to freedom in a bit. Last week, we looked at religion, and here we come to an issue that has come up again and again in these series of meditations. You might say, "What is that issue?" And that is, we have allowed non-believers, the world if you wish, to define terms and concepts that we find in scripture. And then we have taken those as, oh, that—that that is the right meaning of it, and we have embraced it as being the true definitions of those terms and concepts. And the word and concept religion is an excellent example of that. I mentioned last week William Kavanaugh's book, The Myth of Religious Violence, And he says in this, outside of the modern West, that's us, there is no significant concept equivalent to what we think of as religion. And then uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, in a much earlier book, some 40 years earlier, he points out that religion as a discrete category of human activity, this is religious activity, is an invention of the modern West. Kavanaugh observes that ancient languages have no word that approximates what modern English speakers mean by religion. See, for modern people today, religion is is defined as a set of beliefs about the transcendental, not about the practical, not the everyday, but that sort of that transcendental stuff that's out there, which means that religion is not supposed to have any immediate social impact. It is seen as a matter of conscience, a matter of belief, nothing to do with the physical realm of human existence. This definition is seen as modern, and if one does not embrace this definition, then one obviously needs to be modernized and brought up to snuff. What is the biblical definition of religion? Well, interestingly, nowhere in the New Testament is a Christian faith presented as a religion. Religion is needed when there is perceived to be a wall between the worshiper and the one that is worshipped, between the people here and the transcendental. Well, when Jesus came, the wall that separated us from God, he tore down. Therefore, there is no need of religion as such. He came not to start a new religion, But to give new life. This is one of the reasons why the early Christians were considered pagan, or were considered atheists by pagans. It's like, what is wrong with you people? Why don't you have temples? Why don't you do sacrifices? Why don't you have rituals? Why don't you have sacred spaces? Because the Christian faith is not a religion, it is new life. I mentioned this, I talked to Dave about it afterwards. It's really intriguing that we have nothing in the first century where people are like, yeah, let's go to Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. Or let's go to Bethlehem. That's where he was born. Or let's go and meet certain people. That These are important people. We don't find that. Because the Christian faith is not a religion. The people of God are the temple. We don't need buildings as such. And as one writer put it, Christianity is the end of religion. Because in Jesus Christ, the life that we lost when Adam and Eve sinned, which could only be symbolized and signified and asked for in religion, has been restored through the Lord Jesus. So then the question is, from our text, why does James speak of religion? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, religion that is worthless. The reality is he doesn't. And for reasons that escape me, that are beyond me, the translators have in fact chosen to use that word when it is not something that we find in the Christian vocabulary. Um, The word that is used in Latin, from which we get religion, speaks of social obligations. It doesn't speak of anything having to do with religion, but of social and familial obligations. As I said last week, we think that it comes actually from two words, re, means to do again, and ligare, which means to bind your sandals. It means to re-establish, to retie something that has been broken. You have family obligations, you have social obligations. That's what the word religio means, which is the word from which we get our English religion. What James describes is not religion, But in fact, behavior that is shaped by the gospel. And he gives three examples that we need to watch how we speak, control our tongues, we are to take care of those who are in need, and we are to keep ourselves from being contaminated by the world. These are all external things, by the way. This isn't conscience, this isn't belief, these are actions. Why does James write these things? Well, I suggested several reasons last week. The first is self-deception. You know, he says, do not deceive yourselves. You know, you think, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good Christian. It's like, listen, if you don't control your tongue, your religion, what you perceive to be, is in fact worthless. You're deceiving yourselves. James is keenly aware that we are prone to self-deception, even those who are the people of God. And our circumstances may partly be responsible for this self-deception. We want to fit in. And then when we compare ourselves to other people, we're like, well, I'm not that bad. And so we deceive ourselves. The second reason he writes this is because of persecution. The book of James is written to those who used to live in Jerusalem who have now been scattered by persecution. And oftentimes, I picture persecution, or those who are persecuted as meeting secretly, um, you know, trying to hide out. If you've seen the movie Silence, there are examples of this because the Japanese government had turned uh, against the Catholic faith, and so people had to worship secretly. But I think it's more than that. We need to act like Christians. So let's say for the the sake of argument, there are no secret meetings, we're just individual Christians. If we do what James says, I think we're going to stand out. If we control our tongues, if we take care of those in need, if we keep ourselves from being contaminated by the, the things around us, people are going to go, I think you're a Christian. So how do you avoid that? Well, don't control your tongue. Don't take care of those in need and just allow yourself to be contaminated left and right by the surrounding culture. And then the third thing, which I think affects us as Americans, is privatization. That is, I will keep my faith in my heart. It'll be my conscience. It'll be my belief system that nobody can see, but I'm still a Christian. And in that moment, the Christian faith becomes privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. Some years ago, I went home to the Philippines and um, went to a compound where an extended family of mine live. I used to go there every Sunday for lunch. And I went to see them, to visit them. And one of my cousins, for lack of, that's how we were related somehow, um, was there with some friends and was drunk as could be. And and he yelled out to me, he said, don't worry, Damon, I'm okay, I have Jesus in my heart. As much as to say, my actions are not who I am, what I have in my heart is who I am. Well, let's face it, we all sin, okay, we all do things we shouldn't do. But James focuses on the externals, and I think we would rather internalize it so that people at work or people we live next door to don't know that we're Christians because it's something that's very private for us. So we have freedom, we have religion. Let's put them together and let's talk about freedom of religion. When we tie them together, freedom of religion is the result. And naturally, or so it would seem, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution comes up. The First Amendment to the Constitution reads as follows. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Many people believe that the First Amendment provides Christians with all the protection they need to live out the consequences of the gospel with integrity. There's a problem, though, that few seem to recognize. That is that the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution contains assumptions about freedom and religion, which, in fact, are contrary to what we find in Scripture. And they actually weigh against the freedom of the Church with any theological depth. See, what happens is we have the public sphere and the private sphere. In the public sphere, you have reason. That's how we make decisions. In the private sphere, you can pretty much do whatever you want, guided by your conscience or lack thereof, and no one seems to care. It is believed, or it is assumed, I think it's implied, that the public sphere has no theological assumptions. It's neutral. It's sort of Switzerland, okay? It is a place where there is no theology, no doctrine. The belief is that, in fact, one can live a life of virtue without any mention or idea of God. This is not a theologically neutral idea. You can't say, okay, I'm going to believe in God and you're not going to believe in God and the First Amendment allows that. That is true. But for a person to not believe in God, that's not theologically neutral. That is a person who is in rebellion against God. From a recent uh, podcast from uh, Ken Myers of Mars Hill Audio Journal, a ministry that we support, by the way. He says, there is no religiously neutral definition of religious neutrality. When you say, oh, this is religiously neutral, you're already making an assumption. You are already taking a theological position. So what we find is a view of religion that does not match what we find in scripture. Well, what about freedom? Well, freedom is seen as the absence or of coercion or force in the matter of making personal choices. In other words, every person gets to decide what is true and what is good. Just to remind you of something we looked at in the meditation on freedom, I think one of the keys, if not the key to understanding what freedom is, is to see the connection between freedom and good. I don't think we do that. We see freedom over here, and then if you want to talk about good, that can be something over here. And I mentioned in the sermon uh, a quotation from uh, G.K. Chesterton in his book, Heretics. We are fond of talking about liberty, and I would say freedom, but the way we end up talking of it is an attempt to avoid discussing what is good. In other words, we want to talk about freedom. We don't want to talk about what is good because then you're making a judgment and you're you're making me really uncomfortable because what I think is good may be different from what you think is good. People at the beginning of the 20th century would rather talk about freedom and avoid discussing what is good. Well, 40 years later, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, said, when all that says it is good has been debunked, what I want remains. In the first quote, Chesterton says, good is avoided. In the second quote, C.S. Lewis says, good is gone. What has happened is now freedom is the good. So the ability to to be free and to make choices is seen as the highest good. I believe that an adequate and a proper understanding of freedom requires a proper understanding of how freedom relates to what is good. But we live in a time when, no, if I'm free, then I get to define what is good. I get to define everything. And we find this naive assumption that we can safely eliminate from public life any serious reflection on what is good, all in the name of freedom. You see, if one defines good in a particular way, then you're, you're stepping on somebody else's freedom. If you say this is good and somebody's over here, then you're judging me. You're saying that that is not good. So freedom becomes the good. It becomes the highest good. I have in my notes here that in the modern world, freedom has become the good in the absence of a substantive good. Freedom is seen as the capacity of people or the capability of people to pursue their own desires individually. Freedom becomes the ultimate good. So, freedom has come to be seen, and in light of the First Amendment, as indifferent to the truth and indifferent to God. You can do whatever you want. You have the First Amendment, freedom of religion. So how does that affect us? Christians and the First Amendment. There have been in the last several years a number of incidents in which Christians have been charged with refusing to do something based on personal convictions, whether it be... Uh, doing wedding cakes or floral arrangements or printing invitations. Some have been fined heavily based on various laws, Consumer Protection Act, a violation of free speech, and more. And the response from some Christians has been, hey, we have freedom of religion. It's guaranteed in the Constitution, First Amendment. But I would say, in fact, That allows the state, it allows the government to define both freedom and religion. And I would argue that we do not agree or we should not agree with either definition. In another article by William Kavanaugh, uh, intriguingly entitled, Are We Free Not to be a Religion? He states, a deeper look at the recent government arguments about the free exercise of religion, however, makes clear what it does or that what it does and does not count as religion is at the heart of the matter. In other words, the state gets to decide what is religion and what is not religion. Certain laws are seen not as a restriction of religious liberty, but a clarification of what counts as religion and what does not. Now, if you think about it, this this does somewhat make sense. If, in fact, you have a group of people who say, in our religion, uh, we practice cannibalism. Well, we would say, well, that's, that's not an acceptable religion. That you can't claim First Amendment protection to, to cover your cannibalism. So, in some sense, the state does define. But when it does that for the people of God, and we accept it, then we're in deep trouble. When the church allows itself to be defined as a religion, the same individualism, separation of religion from the rest of life, and assimilation to the dominant culture are clear and present dangers. When we allow the government to define who we are and what we are, then we have in fact stepped into it. We should not allow what is a civil matter to define our views of freedom and religion. We must be careful to accept that religious freedom is a fundamental right, as many people assert. We can't do this without asking, okay, what do you mean by freedom? What do you mean by religion? What do you mean by religious freedom? And what do you mean by a fundamental right? In our text, James speaks of external obligations that the people of God have, we are obligated to keep in obeying the perfect law that gives freedom. We owe God obedience because we've been set free. I mentioned this uh, last week or the week before. Who is the law given to? The law is not given to slaves. It's given to people who have been freed. And Just because you're free doesn't mean you get to do what you want. God sets Israel free, brings them to Sinai and says, this is how you're supposed to live. And the question is, are we going to follow what scripture teaches us? Are we going to allow the world to define and to tell us what we can and cannot do? So I said at the beginning, these are only matters for meditation, not a complete or exhaustive examination of the matter of freedom of religion. Um, but in closing, I'd like you to consider the following about freedom. A book that just came out, maybe two or three weeks ago, maybe last month, um, Oz Guinness uh, is, is entitled Carpe Diem Redeemed, Seizing the Day, Discerning the Times. And he states, the Bible's view of human freedom is completely different from all the numerous forms of determinism, whether ancient or modern, and many uh, simple but revolutionary truths follow from this basic truth. And then he gives four qualities of freedom. I will only mention two here at the end. The first is freedom requires humility. And it defies the arrogance of rationalist certainty. He argues that the future will always surprise, always shock. We're never quite sure what is going to happen. Freedom demands humility. We make decisions and we don't say... Oh, I'm going to do this, and I know what the result will be. We have God-given freedom to obey Him, but we don't know what the consequences in this life will be. The second thing is that freedom always necessitates living with risk and insecurity. The human story is open-ended. We know it's going toward an end, but God alone knows how it will end up. It could go one way or the other. Freedom can never make us permanently secure. I think that's one of the things that's happening in this country last not, uh, now, um, because of the last election. People were so sure they knew how things were going to go, and they went a completely unexpected direction, and people are it seems like almost losing their minds. Listen, to be human means that you cannot predict what is going to happen. As God's people, we are to trust him, we are to obey him, and to realize this involves risk. And it also involves a certain insecurity in this life. I can't help but wonder if in the church at large today... What is missing is humility and a willingness to live with risk and insecurity. What I seem to hear is quite the opposite. Those who promise a Christian life without risk or problems seem to be the more popular versions of the church today. If we live lives of obedience, that is to be free to realize who God made us to be by abiding in his word by obeying his commands, by doing and not simply hearing, we realize that what we choose, why we choose, how we choose, is what scripture means when it speaks of freedom. Freedom involves risk. But no, we have the First Amendment. It will protect us. And we've lost sight of the risk of being a Christian. Toward the end of the book, uh, Osginis tells the story of his family um, I knew part of the story but not as much as he laid out in this chapter his grandfather was a medical missionary to China the end of the 19th century he was one of the pioneer medical missionaries to China he died of typhus that he contracted while ministering by taking care of an imperial guard he was buried in Beijing during the cultural revolution the red guard dug up his body and desecrated his grave Oz's father and mother were both born in China. They went back to England, became medical people. They came back and worked in the hospital that his grandfather had pioneered. When World War II broke out, they were caught, he, his parents, and his two brothers, in the Great Famine of 42 and 43. Five million people died in that province, Henan, um, because of um, the devastation there. Among those who died were his two brothers. Oz almost died, his mother almost died. And then they joined a crowd of 10 million refugees to try to make it to food. Oz tells the story in this book to illustrate that his parents' and grandparents' work came at great cost. In 1949, when the communists took over, his parents were arrested and kept under house arrest for several years and finally released. And then Oz points out that after almost a century and a half of missionary work in China, we think there might have been 750,000 Chinese Christians, which is not an insignificant number, but for all those years and then to have fewer than a million believers. Then the communists came in, and brutal persecution broke out. So what is the result? Fifty years later, it is believed that there are more than a hundred million Chinese Christians. After 150 years of missionaries, 750,000 Fifty years of persecution under the Chinese government there are hundred million people. who could have predicted that? That doesn't seem to make sense. It's counterintuitive. But Oz's grandfather, his parents, in obedience to God, free to become the people God meant them to be, gave their lives to share the gospel there in China. And who could have predicted the results? Before his father died at the age of 90, I think, uh, Oz's father was able to go back to Henan, the province that he worked in. Got to meet people that he actually led to the Lord 50 years earlier. Henan province is now the fastest growing part of the church in the world today. Oz's parents. Felt the freedom to obey God. It requires humility. And sometimes it involves great risk. And the reality is we don't know how it's going to end up. But that's okay. We live in a world that is dominated by fear. I think we can't help but be affected and infected by that. But we have been set free. We are not to be governed by fear, but by the freedom we have in Christ. Free to be obedient, free to be the people of God, the people that God created us to be, that he is recreating us to be in the image of Christ. We are free to keep a tight rein on our tongues. We are free to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And we are free to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. That's what freedom is. I think we've lost sight of that. Because we've allowed the world to define what freedom is and what religion is. And by God's grace, I hope you think on these things in the coming days. Let's pray together. Our Father, your people for the past few generations have not been marked by deep thought. We seem quite willing to allow other people to define terms for us. And indeed in this country, we are a country of great freedom. One could argue that we are the envy of the world for the freedoms that we have. That's not freedom as is described in scripture. We have freedom of religion. People of almost any faith can practice their faith freely in this country. But we are not a religion. The truth is not a religion, it is the truth. And yet somehow we've not thought about this, we've just sort of gone with the flow. Help us to think on these things and to see who it is you've called us to be. That you have given us great freedom. We should not be proud of that because everything we have comes from you. We should be humble. We should recognize that we don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. But you do. Help us to recognize that being free in Christ Involves risk. Thousands, if not millions, of our brothers and sisters around the world today do not have the liberty to be Christians without suffering consequences. Our biggest fear is that people will look at us sideways and wonder, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? Why do they think that way? I thank you for your people throughout history who because of the freedom they have in Christ gave their lives for the gospel. May we learn from their examples. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We do remember again Kim and ask that you would touch her, watch over her and the baby. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.